that your grandma had a weird crush on didn't know how she felt about it i'm one of your hosts i'm marty schneider i'm that other host dan ludwig and dan i want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind a little bit lately um there's something that i feel like a lot of the media that i consumed when i was a kid promised me was going to be a big deal promised me would be part of my childhood and i i thought that this was going to be a bigger deal and that is minecart chases I feel like a lot of movies, TV, video games, they prepared me for high speed, high stakes minecart chases. Yeah. Uh, I thought that eventually I would have to face down a bad guy and have some harrowing turns, hairpins. Maybe my minecart would go out of control. Maybe I'd roll it through town Mm -hmm. uh, and smash through a giant plate glass window that two guys were carrying. And yet, here I am, age 32. I'm a grown man, and I've never seen the inside of a mine, let alone been in a cart. And also, carts, as far as I understand, mine carts are big and heavy and very slow. And, you know, so you get all that black lung in there. They don't, they're not good for racing. Also, this is basically the John Mulaney quicksand bit, mm-hmm. but with mine carts. Thoughts? Yeah. We're, okay, yeah, I was going to point out the John Mulaney thing. I was about to say, like, you better not be about to say quicksand, motherfucker. I have such bad news for you. Uh, But yeah, minecarts. So my initial thought process was, it's weird that Spielberg, Donkey Kong, and a billion other things looked at minecarts and all simultaneously said, that's for adventures, that's for jumps and flips and stuff. Uh, But then I started thinking about minecarts and how they look. And I'm like, I would not get in one of those. Those look like they could only be used for jumps and flips and stuff. They only look like they're barely hanging on to the rails as I turn left. Uh, They only look like there's sparks coming out when I put the brakes on. So, like, if anything, Spielberg and Donkey Kong were, like, basically using them for their intended purpose, and coal miners are, like, lunatics for using these wacky roller coasters to move coal. Fair point. Yeah, Yeah. fair point. Yeah, I understand. You're using... Like, a a roller coaster deep in the dark underground. What are you doing? Like, Indiana Jones is the sensible one in this situation for fighting a guy in it. It's more useful for that. It's probably safer. Indiana Jones trying to murder a guy in a minecart probably had fewer OSHA violations than the normal usage of a minecart. The reason I've been thinking that is, number one, I have been playing Donkey Kong Tropical Freeze for the Nintendo Switch. A game so difficult that they had to re-release it with a second character that, like, makes sense and plays like an actual goddamn video game character. Yeah. They they were like, hey, what if we just let you have the double jump all of the time? That might make the game a little easier and more playable, right? Um, Anyway, I have been playing that, but the other reason I I brought that up is because... uh, Today we are exploring a trifecta of Don Knotts films. We're taking a step away from the Andy Griffith show and we're going to see a little bit of Don Knotts' career post-Andy Griffith but pre-Three's Company. Uh, And one of the films that I watched was The Apple Dumpling Gang, which does in fact feature 
a wild minecart chase through a western town. They do smash through, uh, kids do smash through a mirror, and eventually smash into a giant one-man band like Melodian thing that uh, we are informed immediately before is very expensive, Douglas. So, you know, uh, yeah. so that does happen in that movie. Uh, I watched the, uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang. Um, it wasn't on our agenda. I just kind of watched it to see if it was anything. Yeah. Um, it's not. Like, you gotta understand, after Walt died, there were, like, 15 years where the Disney company was just like, what the hell do we do with anything? That's uh, kind of been a fun part of having Disney Plus, is just, like, flipping through, like, you're, you watched Gargoyles, you watched all the Pixar movies, let's just see if this back catalog of Disney stuff from the last 50 fucking years is anything, and the answer is overwhelmingly no. Yeah. Like, like Disney. No wonder they have to remake Lion King again. They have nothing. They they're coming up with nada. Uh, like their back catalog is their hit or miss ratio is abysmal. They're like batting like like point eight percent out of everything they've made. If you if you look at like the actual history of the company from about 1970 to about 85 when Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg showed up and took over they're just drifting aimlessly. The only thing that's making them money is uh the the theme parks. So it's yeah. a banner era for theme park design, but the stuff that they're putting out the animation is uh Mostly Xerox, like the thing that kept their animation division alive was the fact that Xerox technology existed, uh, and their ability to kind of corner the market on schmaltzy, cheaply made family, mostly made for TV uh, stuff that people had to watch because cable hadn't shown up yet, and there were only three or four like networks, basically just cruising on that name. Uh, and like, base if if Eisner and Katzenberg hadn't shown up when they did. We would treat Disney the way we treat the Hallmark Channel yeah. these days. Like, that's the kind of shit they were putting out constantly. Uh, and the Apple Dumpling Gang is one of those. It's basically a made-for-TV movie. Don Knotts in, in, and his partner, Tim Conway, they're only, like, side characters in it. They're the plucky comic relief in this story about three, like, cute orphans in the Old West. Uh, credit where it's due, like... The climax for a, uh, like, Disney Western is pretty good. Like, there's a pretty good shootout at the end and a legitimately, like, kick-ass chase scene on a runaway fire truck, um, which is pretty the cool. Old West? It's like a fire, like, wagon. It's like a... They, oh. Yeah. Conway and Knott's are, are kind of funny. They do some some good bits, but it's not really about them. Uh, it's, it's, it's schmaltz. Uh, and and yeah. at this point in... Disney history, or in like in the seventies, people were kind of getting sick of that. The critics, like I read the read the reviews, and Roger Ebert tore this thing to shreds. It was yeah, basically just like I am so tired of this. You've been doing this movie for twenty years now. Like, yeah, show me something else. They were just um, making the Swiss Family Robinson over and over again, where it's like like fun and a lot of talking and da 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 bright colors, and then at the end, you just blow a bunch of crap up. Yeah, and yeah. just like the kids clap for it because they have no fucking idea what's going on. The Apple Dumpling Gang rides again. Apparently, is much funnier. It's just it's just Don Knotts and Tim Conway. I will never watch this. Yeah. Um, so this wasn't on the agenda, but I wanted to bring it up as kind of a um, introduction to the era of 
TV and movies that we're talking about. This was Don Knotts' bread and butter for about 10 years, were these, like, wild, wacky, family-ish adventures. With the exception of one movie that I'm going to talk about later, and I'm very excited to talk about. Mm -hmm. But, Dan, you watched Gus. Yeah. Would you Um, Tom, tell me about Gus? What the fuck is Gus? So Gus is a movie that's basically Airbud crossed with Home Alone starring a Yugoslavian mule. You'd think the important word would be like Airbud, but no, the most important word in that entire description is Yugoslavian. Yugoslavia <laughs> factors heavily into the plot, motifs, and aesthetics of this movie. Like, every character at any point in time has to mention that Yugoslavia is involved in this uh, in this movie to the point that like characters will be threatening the main character be like hey I'm about to kick your Yugoslavian ass like it's weirdly worked into everything and the background music to everything is always like this klezmer music from Eastern Europe uh, Europe on a uh, on an accordion it's a very weird aesthetic it's kind of I kind of picked a bad example for the thing we're doing where we examine the career of Don Knotts. Because, um, uh, Marty, look at the, the poster for Gus real fast, if you want to just pull that up. Okay, so, yeah, the the, the, post, the poster for Gus appears to be Don Knotts yelling at a donkey. Yeah. Uh, like he's some kind of, like, like, coach or whatever, and he's telling that donkey to get a good hustle out there. The poster of this movie makes a very clear promise that you're going to watch Don Knotts yell at a horse. You're going to watch Don Knotts get very frustrated with the antics of a horse and yell at him. Don Knotts does not once interact with the fucking mule. Uh, (laughs) Cumulatively, Don Knotts is in about 15% of this movie. I'm going to put it closer to 10. Most of it is the opening credits. Uh, He does not interact with any major actors aside from one guy. They very clearly filmed all of his material in one day and sent him home, but then still paid him enough that they could bill him second on the call sheet. Oh, this uh, is definitely definitely like a contract-satisfying kind of movie, right? This yeah. is definitely like, like Disney being like, okay, Don, you've got like three more movies on this on this contract, and Don Lott's like, all right, well, yeah. put me out there to yell at a horse or whatever. Yeah, they're basic, they basically said like, hey, come on in, kids. You want to see Don Knotts, your favorite actor? interact with the horse and the kids were like yeah It'd be like i hope you like international politics and the minutiae rules of football do you want to watch two old men in a game of wits over who gets to own a football franchise and the kids were like yes i guess <laughs> i can't leave how much does the rules of football factor in it's like oh franchise management factors very heavily into the mechanics of this film so so basically what you're telling me is like it's like if they pitched moneyball as a wacky jonah hill comedy yes exactly Except not because because jo- jonah hill is a major character in in moneyball but it's like if they tried to pitch the movie jobs as a wacky seth rogan comedy kind of because seth rogan's in that movie for like five fucking minutes <laughs> it's so weird. It's kind of, in its own demented way, kind of a good movie. There is a prolonged a prolonged set piece where Tim Conway and Tom Bosley wrestle a horse in a supermarket. 
and not like kind of wrestle him like not like not like the they like try to grab the horse and like the horse hits them with something and they fall backwards like tim conway is wrestling with a donkey in a pile of ketchup and mayonnaise and the horse is like thrashing and it is like someone's demented fetish happening on the fucking screen Okay, you, you don't know why I'm making this face, yeah, but I'm making this face. this face because the Apple Dumpling Gang also features a seven-minute scene where Tim Conway wrestles a donkey. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what? This, that was, was his deal! Was this just his shtick? Was this just in his contract? <laughs> There's one of two options. One, they're like, all right, we need someone to wrestle this donkey. Come, come get me Conway. Or B, they're like, all right, Conway signed down for a three-picture deal, and he wants to wrestle the donkey in two of them. We can kind of work it into the Apple Dumpling Gang, but I think we need to make an entirely different movie where Tim Conway can fight a fucking donkey. <laughs> what if What if it's like the Cornetto trilogy? What if there's like three or four, the, the, the Conway donkey cinematic universe. There's, like, the there's the just like, his fucking roommate. <laughs> what if like, there's, there's like a Nacho Libre style movie out there where Tim Conway goes, gets really into like professional wrestling and his opponent at the end is El Burro. Yeah. <laughs> just an actual live donkey. He's, he's been like, he was traumatized by a donkey kick as a young boy. It's his tragic backstory, but he's trying to, like, work his way up in the field of wrestling. And then his final, like, uh, his, his final boss, a donkey, just walks into the, uh, into the ring. And someone, and he just goes, like, how is there a donkey in here? And someone just goes, you know, technically, there's no rule against there being a donkey in wrestling. This is also how Gus operates. It's, it's Creed 2. He has to fight the son of the donkey that killed his father. <laughs> yeah. And, like, those kids in the theater are just sitting there for, like, 45 minutes. Because this is most of the movie. Like, everything else is just, like, exposition, exposition, exposition. All right, kids, let's watch Tim Conway take a donkey to the fucking ground. Do you want to find out if a donkey can be put in an arm bar? Tim Conway's going to show you. And kids are just like, I guess this is cool? Sure. But so, but we we have to make sure that we spend forty five minutes talking about the design of a boxing ring before before the Creed two style fight can happen. Yeah, that was like the seventies thing of like, all right, you want to see a super cool action set piece? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're gonna build it brick by brick, dowel by dowel, so that you can just have a real good understanding of what everything is when we blow it up. Seventies movies loved logistics. Dan, what was what's that quote from Dan Harmon that you love so much about how like movies didn't need to be about anything until like 1977? To quote Dan Harmon, before 1977, a movie could just be that Gene Hackman wanders around an empty house, jerks off in a cup, and shoots himself in the head. Uh, he specifically says like before Jaws, movies could just be fucking meaningless and empty. Uh, yeah, I kind I, of I didn't I, I didn't believe him until recently until yeah. we started really just going into this shit like you didn't need and we've already established that you didn't need a plot on television i didn't know that movies were that behind the curve as well yeah like, like movies are just kind we're just kind of like hey do you want to see a sequence of actions uh just a series of things happening that are related in that they have the same people in them but they don't really tell any coherent story or anything like the movie I'm gonna share with us later 
is very, very much about stuff. It has a lot to say until it just kind of doesn't. Yeah. About halfway through, it just forgets to be about anything. The big example is MASH. The, the Robert Altman movie where just it's about like the horrors of war. That movie sucks. And then I they just start playing watch, fucking football. I tried to watch MASH re- like about a year ago because I like Robert Altman, but that movie is bad and mean. It's yeah. a very mean movie. I, I have not watched it because I have not. Or basically, I've heard this exact feedback, but it's like the quintessential 70s movie in that halfway through, it just gets tired of being that movie. And just decides to be a different fucking movie. And I feel like that formula worked for some shit. Like, it worked for Cannonball Run, which has, like, the least, like, the, like, flimsiest premise you can imagine for just antics just to be there. Smokey and the Bandit, same deal. It's just, here's a flimsy premise so that we can smash things, you know? Yeah. And Jerry Reed can play country music. But it doesn't, like, some things need to have plots. There was a lot of shit talking in movies in, like, the early 2000s, but, like... The 1970s were, like, the most creatively bankrupt America has ever fucking been. They were just throwing darts at boards. I mean, getting back to Disney, right? That was kind of their whole thing, is that was the first time post-Walt's death that Disney was being really accused of just, like, being uh, a cash-in. Like, this was the first time people were like, you're just, these movies have no heart, and you're just, like, using them to make money off the Disney name. A tradition yeah. which would remain for generations. Yeah. <laughs> they got smarter about it eventually. <laughs> and uh, then much dumber. So tell me more about Gus. Okay, so so you've got this Cold War-ass donkey. Like, is, is the donkey a metaphor for anything? Do no. I need to know? I just, I've, I've got the Wikipedia, like, article for Yugoslavia up. Um, by the way, it's not a country anymore. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. It doesn't exist anymore. Is that going to help me understand this movie about a, a donkey who plays soccer? Is okay. that a sport? Uh, do you want me to take you beat by beat or just like broad strokes this? Just, just, just give me the idea of Gus. because. Okay, so the general synopsis of Gus is that there's a kid in Yugoslavia and his brother is like this great Yugoslavian uh, soccer star. Uh, you know it's an American film because they call it soccer in Yugoslavia. <laughs> um, but, um, he's a great soccer star. He sucks at everything. He's clumsy as shit. He can't play soccer. His name's Andy. He has a giant afro. He has a Yugoslavian accent, which is actually just English spoken slower and more deliberately. <laughs> so the Yugoslavian ac- uh, accent is just better English. He's just like, my name is Andy and I am from Yugoslavia. It's like, oh, what? you foreign motherfucker. Oh, I-, I bet that was fun to watch for an entire 90 minutes. Oh, the main character speaks so fucking slowly and is so vacant. He's not even like anybody. Like, this was his only movie. He's just some, like, 20-something with big hair and sideburns. One day, he accidentally has uh, his donkey kick a soccer ball by saying the word oyish. Uh, and the donkey kicks the soccer ball insanely far. And in America, there is a football team, the Los Angeles Adams, are uh, owned. They're owned by Ed Asner and coached by Don Knotts. They basically have a terrible fucking team staffed entirely by fucking losers. And they have gone completely, not just winless, but pointless for the entire previous season. 
in a desperate attempt to drum up attendance at their stadium, they fly Gus over from Yugoslavia, and he starts doing, like, halftime field goal kicks, until, in a moment of desperation, they actually make Gus their kicker, and Andy, like, his, his placeholder, um, on the basis of, like, they, they just trot him onto the field, and the owner is like, he plays football now! And everyone <laughs> is like, what the fuck are you talking about? Get this horse off the stadium before we end the game. And he's like, no, take it to the refs. And the refs come back and they're like, so technically we never actually defined what a player is. So it could be a man, woman, child, or animal. So there's no rule against it being a donkey. And so they did airbud rules. There's technically no rule against an animal playing this game. I can't believe... I can't believe that Airbud was a knockoff, essentially. I can't believe that Airbud took inspiration can you from be- another film. Can you believe Airbud wasn't the first to this premise? <laughs> that there's which Which, like, in the Airbud universe, when they found that in the rule book, someone should have been like, you know, we should have learned our lesson from Gus. Yeah, we really should have corrected this, you know, a couple of years ago. Honest so and then Gus is allowed to play for the remainder of the season. This whole thing is part of a fact that the owner of the uh, of the Adams is in a high stakes wager with another football uh, team owner on whether or not he gets to keep his team. So antics ensue as the other football team owner like tries to prevent Gus from playing and they try to keep him in the game. That's most of the back and forth of the movie. And in the in like between Gus just like is apparently an unstoppable victory machine because anytime he plays they automatically win just from the fact that he can make field goals really good i mean the how you still have to get into field goal range that's how football works and both their offense and defense is a train wreck the reason they needed a kicker is because the team accidentally killed one of them like they the defense hit their own guy so hard that he went into a concussion. Who fucking cares? You still have to get to the field goal range. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I take issue with this film about a football kicking horse. I mean I, the internal logic is inconsistent with that of of football that I know and love. Okay, so no, let's interrogate the logic of you can put a a horse on the football field. One, you're going to make him your kicker? Why not just put the football in the horse's mouth and slap its ass? Yeah, right? Like, no one's going to tackle the horse. No one would dare tackle a horse. Tim Conway would. (laughs) Tim Tim Conway Conway would. Tim Conway is... (laughs) What you you don't know is that the entire team, the the opposing team, just Tim Conway clones. (laughs) Yeah. Tim Conway, like, emerges from the ground like Cherniborg. Like, boom, boom, boom. (laughs) How many... Tim Conway's does it take to take down, let's say, let's say two horses. Let's no, let's, let's say that the entire offensive line of the Los Angeles Rams is horses, right? Yeah. But, but the rest, rest of the team is regular humans. They're just protected by a line of horses, which let's say is two horses. Yeah. Basically two or three horses are the offensive line. How many Tim Conway's do the, Oakland Raiders need to draft in order to get past that that offensive line and sack uh I don't know 
Case Keenum? Is that that the quarterback for the Rams yeah, these days? Let, I don't know. Let's say a Case Keenum. In it, going off of Gus, if it's Case Keenum, he'll just fall down. Uh, he'll he'll do it to himself. Tim Conway in this had Tom Bosley on his side. He still couldn't take take down one fucking mule. So I think it would probably need to be. He gave it a good run, I'd say. Um, like he got him a couple of times, but the horse always outmaneuvered him by like throwing him into a lobster tank. Or uh, making him think that a lady's high heel was his hoof so that Tim Conway grabbed it. uh, And then a big guy beat Tim Conway up. Um, So I'd say it would probably need to be like two Tim Conways per horse. Okay. He he got his hands on him a couple of times. So just saying, unstoppable. Unstoppable. You put a couple of horses on the Rams, unstoppable. Yeah. But if I'm another owner in this league, I'm like, oh, sorry, we can put animals on our teams now? Yeah, what? what's to stop anyone? What's to stop me from just drafting a silverback gorilla? Yeah. <laughs> this is Coco, my tight end. <laughs> Fuck you. Get the horse off the field or I put him in the snap. Fuck off. Oh, here is my entire starting line. It's Bobcats. All right. <laughs> Take the horse out. Let's tango. You blink first, motherfucker. I will paint the stadium red. You could just do like, oh, what's my defense? It's water buffalo. Yeah. It's startled water buffalo. You physically cannot get past them. They will not move for you. What what, what are we going to do here? Brings a whole new meaning to the nickname Beast Mode. That was good. I appreciated yeah. that. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. They don't even say, like, the rule is not like, well, it's okay for a horse to be in the game, but only if he kicks. Like, it's just like, yeah, apparently you can put kids in here, too. What the fuck, NFL? They, the best part is when they're announcing it, they're like, apparently... Your team can be anyone, including men, women, and horses. Like, they really hit women, too. They're like, man, this is crazy. Okay, but here's the thing. I think that the actual NFL will let a horse kick before we have a female NFL player. Yeah, absolutely. For reals. You could honestly probably petition that into the NFL, and at this (laughs) point, they'd just be like, fuck it. Horses are allowed now. We don't really care. I'm, I'm sure that Vince McMahon considered this for XFL rules. Can we talk about how funny it is that Vince McMahon almost got the XFL off the ground before coronavirus destroyed everything? Yes! <laughs> XFL, the dumbest idea anyone has ever had, almost succeeded. <laughs> almost worked. Honestly, one of us should tweet at Vince McMahon and be like, listen, I know you're in a tough place with the XFL right now. Hear me out. <laughs> Just, animals. Hang on, I've got, I've got a thought here. Every team gets one animal, and if they can keep it from killing people, it's allowed to play. I feel like he'd be like, "Yeah, let's do it." It's such a stupid piece of shit. It's incredible that that almost worked. Fuck that guy. Fuck Vince McMahon. He's a piece of shit. Vince McMahon's a horrible human being. Fuck yeah. Him. Gus starts playing, and he's just. Pure fucking fire. Another thing that kicks off uh, throughout the movie is uh, there's a love triangle between Andy, the simple Yugoslavian boy. Uh, Wait, hang on. Hang on. Listen, 
I have been a fan of the Jacksonville Jaguars for 27 years. And if there's one thing that has taught me, it is that you cannot win a football game on field goals alone. (laughs) (laughs) They fucking tried. Yeah. You, you have to get into the end zone eventually. Yeah. It's. The strategy is bad. Ignore ignore the horse part of it. It's just bad football. Yeah, and they really go through painstaking, agonizing terms to say there is not a redeemable player on this team. Everyone is garbage. Every single person. They literally, during the opening credits, where 90% of Don Knotts' screen time happens, they go through player by player. And they have Don Knotts and Ed Asner go like point out individually, like, here's why he sucks. Here's why he sucks. Here's why he sucks. So they have no fucking team except this kicking horse. So they don't totally understand how football works, except they do because it's a movie about football. Yeah, hang on. It's the job of the coach and the owner to get good players. Yeah. They're, they're both like, yeah, our team sucks. Our guys suck so bad. Uh, have, have you been tanking for better draft picks? Is is this trust the pros, Gus? <laughs> that was good. Uh, okay, I, I thought about going Gus the process, but I, I'm I'm glad I went with my instincts. You nailed it. Like they they act like their shitty players is a curse from God. Like they shake their fists and they're like, "Bad players, why has this happened?" <laughs> there was nothing that we could have ever done to prevent this. I mean. This was uh, way before there were things like drafts and uh, and managers. And really, the way you got your players was like you unboxed them all at once. They were like a pack of Yu-Gi-Oh cards. You just like peeled back the saran wrap and be like, oh, God damn it. I got a Bortles. Fuck. OK, yeah. OK, this is this is before the NFL instituted the no loot box rule. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So This is uh, the third fucking Dan Marino I've gotten this week. God! No Tebow, no Tebow, no Tebow. Shit! <laughs> uh, at least I got a Gronk on this one. So, there's a love triangle. That's, that's the other primary thing. Okay. There's a love triangle. And I do need to talk about this love triangle. Because it is Andy. It is between Andy, the sweet Yugoslavian boy, Debbie, who works for the team in some unspecified capacity, and her boyfriend, the primary linebacker for the Adams. Uh, and you'd think it would kind of be like the boyfriend is a huge jerk and secretly Debbie pines for Andy. It opens with her being told like, hey, go entertain this new kid. And the linebacker is just like sitting at with dinner. And he's like, hey, you're my girlfriend, right? And she's like, yeah. He's like, so you're not going to fuck this guy. And she's like, <laughs> go eat your dinner and then after that just she proceeds to in slow motion cheat on her boyfriend with this stupid little yugoslavian dipshit uh, I, I gotta be honest i completely forgot that guy i completely forgot that there was actually a yugoslavian dude in this yeah so it's not really a love triangle in that you're just watching infidelity unfold in slow motion and at every point, the guy's just like, I'm very upset that my girlfriend is apparently leaving me. I just found out because we're getting off of a plane and she kissed someone other than me. Uh, Slow motion cuckoldry seemed to be a recurring theme in the 60s and 70s that like. Yeah. I'm not sure how that just we just let that happen. Just kind of sink in. I feel like they were kind of trying to do the wedding singer thing of like 
like, oh, there's there's another man that but he wants her, so the longing, and there's an obstacle, but they hadn't quite figured it out, so they hadn't learned that you need to make the other guy a dipshit or an asshole. Yeah, you gotta make the other guy a jerk, otherwise your guy just looks like a jerk. Yeah! Debbie is the sociopath in all this, because Andy is like, hello, would you like to go to dinner with me? And she's like, I have a dinner reservation with my boyfriend, but... Yeah, and then she doesn't tell the boyfriend, leaves him to wait in front of the restaurant for two hours. <laughs> and then, when he gets back, finds out that she's at a drive-in movie theater with some Yugoslavian guy, goes to try to catch them in the act, and gets the shit kicked out of him by some random dude in a car. I feel terrible for this fucking linebacker. Yeah, so that's like this whole weird dynamic. Basically, the through line for the rest of the film is that Tim Conway and... Tim Conway and Tom Bosley get out of jail. They're two con men, and the rival football team owner hires them to fuck with this horse as much as possible and just, like, prevent it from playing every week with a pretty great success rate. They succeed, like, 100% of the time. Um, (laughs) On one, they kidnap Andy and Gus, drive them out into the middle of the desert, and leave them there. The other one, they get Gus drunk they pour vodka into his oats and make him play the game shit-faced. And then in the third one, and this is, this one's really wacky, um, Tim Conway impersonates a doctor at a hospital doing a very over-the-top fake Jewish accent, tells Andy that his girlfriend has been in a terrible accent and needs a blood transfusion, has him come into the hospital, kidnaps him, locks him in a room, tries to physically restrain him there, uh, and he only manages to escape by sneaking out of a window. And I really cannot emphasize how offensive the Jewish accent he does the entire time is. It's very unnecessarily over the top. Such a bad Jewish accent that it sounds almost Transylvanian. Oh, that's even worse. Yes. Yeah, so... I, 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 I gotta be honest, I completely even forgot that, like, these were... Ca- it feels like there don't need to be this many characters. No! It's very weird that you said Don Knotts is barely in this movie because he seems to be the only character i would think needs to be in this movie you'd think don Knotts would be the primary like emotional core and it's played by the owner for some reason ed asner don Knotts' role in this movie is that he delivers football speeches he tells the players like we gotta get out there and we gotta leave it all on the field and i want this to but this to play like a 40-man team and we're gonna give it to them and they're gonna work hard no jokes Don Knotts does not tell a single joke in this film. Not even close. Other people tell jokes, and Don Knotts goes, mm. like he he is stymied by these jokes, but he does not do a single humorous thing. Does he do the Don Knotts voice? Like, does he do the high-pitched Don Knotts voice? Yeah, he does, like, football speeches and the Don- high-pitched Don Knotts voice, except sometimes when he's, like, Okay, because in the Apple Dumpling Gang, he doesn't do the Don Knotts voice. He does, like, a normal voice. And it's it's weird. Yeah. It's fucking weird to hear. Part of that is because, now, I know that Don Knotts and Tim Conway don't have any scenes together in this movie. But when they were working together, they made, like, four movies together during the 70s. And when they did that, I know that Don Knotts kind of shifted himself into the straight man role. Yeah. Which seems like a terrible idea, right? Andy's the straight man, Don's the Don's the weird one. But he becomes, like, the straight man for Tim Conway's comedy, which does not work for me on any level. No, it's, I mean, after a certain point, being the fucking wacky dude has to be 
fucking exhausting. Like, oh sure, I'm sure he got very tired of it. But... You get sick of being Kramer, and you want to be Jerry after a certain point. But I mean, that he's good at being Kramer, and yeah. I think that might be why he eventually just went back to television because trying to shift him into like like lead roles just it didn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, I want I want to read something to you. Yeah. I pulled up the Wikipedia summary for for Gus, mm-hmm. and I've got I've also got the one for the Apple Dumpling Gang here. So first, I'm going to read the reception section of. Uh, oh yeah, Eber ripped this apart. Yeah. Okay. So here, here. Well, listen, listen closely. So this is for uh, the Apple Dumpling Gang. Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun Times gave the film two and a half stars out of four, and wrote that the film was quote in a lot of ways. A throwback to the Disney productions of two or three years ago. A period of overwhelming banality in the studio's history. More recently, Disney has given us some genuinely inventive entertainments, especially Escape to Witch Mountain and Island at the Top of the World. With the Apple Dumpling Gang, we're back to assembly line plots about the adventures of squeaky clean kids. That's what Roger Ebert wrote about the Apple Dumpling Gang. Here's what Roger Ebert wrote about Gus. Roger Ebert gave the film two stars out of four and wrote, Two different kinds of movies have been coming out of the Walt Disney organization in the last few years. Inventive, entertaining fantasies like Escape to Witch Mountain and The Island at the Top of the World, and dreary retreads of tired old Disney formulas. Gus, alas, is in the retread category. Come on, Roger! (laughs) That's the same review! Yeah! I mean, does Disney... It does not sound like Disney deserved multiple kinds of reviews. It sounds like Roger Ebert was just being like, hey guys, it's one of the shitty Disneys. Don't worry about the rest of it. I don't have to tell you what this movie is about. It's Disney in the 70s. It sucks. Yeah, I mean, I number one, I can't I can't critique Roger Ebert for this. I can't fault him, but uh, I, I understand. Sometimes you're on a deadline. Sometimes you just gotta cut and paste because it's all the same fucking movie. Right? Yeah. Uh, I've honestly... But those are the same sentence. He wrote the same sentence on both of them. It's it's such an exhausting film. I do not blame him for being so fucking tired. He's like, I'm Roger Ebert in the 70s. Film is insane right now. I have so much to deal with. I do not have time for your warmed over, leftover bullshit, Disney. Fuck off. <laughs> If you're going to just punch it in a template, so am I. How, how how should we wrap up Gus, Dan? What are your final thoughts on Gus? All right, so there is a thing I do want to talk about with Gus in that it, the big climax of the movie, the whole point of the film, is not the horse playing football. It is the Tim it's Conway. It's not? No. No. It's not like the horse goes to the Super Bowl or something? No, they go to the Super Bowl. The horse does not play. Andy finds the strength to play football on his own. Does, does, does the horse break his leg? Like, Is there a football injury? Does the horse break his leg and then suddenly we have to do an old yeller? Because, I mean... Yeah, they so... Just have to, they just have to put the horse out of his misery on the 50-yard line <laughs> right before halftime of the Super Bowl. And then Cindy Lauper performs right after. Johnny Unitas just comes on like, folks, I know that was a pretty grim way to start the fourth quarter, but let's put it up. Let's get the energy up here. <laughs> the Adams are about to go for the, go for the three. Andy gets really bummed because uh, his dad thinks he's a loser. And 
American media who is obsessed with Gus keeps being like, let's hear what Andy's family has to say. And his dad keeps going on TV and being like, my son's a fucking loser. He's just holding a ball for a horse. That's lame as shit. I do not respect him and neither should any of you. And they're like, whoa, how could a father say this? But they do it like three times. And like the third time I'm like, stop putting this old man on TV. You're literally like they do one thing and they're like, Gus has given us all hope in this dark time where nuclear war looms and there's economic inequality and and pollution and everything's terrible. There's Gus giving us all light. What does Andy's father have to think about this? And he's like, this is stupid as shit. You're all fucking idiots. And they're like, oh, we should probably remember to not have you on three scenes from now. But as a result of that, Andy gets very self-conscious. And so in the big Super Bowl, Gus fakes a slip so that Andy has to run the ball while uh, klezmer music blasts. And for some reason, the football, I don't know if this was a thing about um, 70s football, but everyone is so muddy. It's like the field is no longer a field. It's just a big pile of mud that all these boys are rolling around in getting real dirty that Andy has to run through to get to the end. It's like someone's very specific fetish that's happening. I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating. I'm not. Everyone's like, it's so much mud, Marty. It's very upsetting. So he runs through mud. He scores a touchdown without Gus. It's revealed that Gus did it on purpose to give Andy a, a, a better sense of self. No, no. What? How? How is it revealed? Okay. How did? How does anyone figure out that Gus is capable of planning? And also, why are we not all freaking out about that? That a gu- that this horse is capable of empathy and like premeditated plans. That seems like a fucking breakthrough, bigger than a horse can kick a ball. Okay, so let's rewind real fast because this is Please. not the climax of the film. All right, so the climax. How of the, the climax of the film is. They're driving to the Super Bowl with Gus. Tim Conway and Tom Bosley intercept them, stop the uh, stop the truck by pretending that there's a crash bus, switch out Gus with a doppelganger, take Gus to a hotel room. They sneak a horse into a hotel, uh, going up to the hotel clerk, saying, hey, my contact fell out, can you help me search for it? And while the hotel, hotel clerk is distracted by Tom Conway, Tom Bosley just walks a horse into the hotel. It eats someone's wig. No one calls the police. And then they get the horse in the hotel room and they're like, we're just going to bunker down here until after the Super Bowl. And that's when Gus is like, surprise, motherfuckers. I have human intelligence and can solve complex problems. I'm going to go find the fucking Super Bowl. And he kicks the shit out of both of them, literally, storms out the hotel, goes onto the freeway, They chase him down, and then Gus goes into the supermarket where the big action set piece happens, where, again, Tim Conway and Tom Bosley wrestle a horse. (laughs) Okay, hang on, hang on. So, So this horse is capable of understanding what the Super Bowl is? Yeah, the horse sees the Super Bowl on TV and is like, holy shit, the Super Bowl's happening. I gotta get to that Super Bowl. The horse has, like, basic context awareness of what's going on around it. And it takes them into a supermarket and... Then why does the horse allow itself to be kidnapped? 
Yes. If the horse knows that it is being kidnapped, why does it not fight back until that moment? I think it just kind of realizes, like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. The Super Bowl's on right now. I know I'm supposed to be there, so I'm definitely not supposed to be in this fucking hotel room. I'm going to take you guys to a uh, grocery store to throw the fuck down. And then the horse proceeds to home alone the living shit out of these two guys. Well, like, just like, oh, it kicks them into a lobster tank. Oh, it knocks something over to hit Tom Bosley on the head. Oh, it knocked over some lettuce so that Tim Conway slips on it. Um, And Tim Conway and Tom Bosley are not like, I'm so befuddled. They're like, God damn it, I hate this horse. Like, they're furious the entire time and getting really frustrated and upset with each other. Um, and an ex- This is not a real movie. This is not a real thing you're telling me about. I, I need to tell you the weirdest part. Because... Oh, okay. We, there, there's, a, there's two men fighting a horse in a grocery store. What would you imagine is happening around them? Uh, probably people are, like, freaking out. Probably people are like, oh, I guess I cannot buy this Spam, because there's a man fighting a horse in the Spam aisle. I'm shaking my head. I am shaking my head right now. No one is even a little bit perturbed to see a grown man covered in ketchup and mustard fight a horse. Like, they do not stop shopping. They do not walk away. They do not get out of the aisle. Tim Conway is, like, <laughs> taking a horse to a to the ground, and... Someone is like, oh, I'm getting my pickles. It's not my fault you guys are in the fucking pickle aisle. I'm getting my groceries. No one calls the police. No employees come over and are like, excuse me, you can't fight a horse in here. I shouldn't have to tell you that. But you can't, you definitely can't fight a horse in the canned goods aisle, let alone any part of the grocery store. Um, people are not at all perturbed, and they're fighting this horse for 15 fucking minutes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's insane. Like, there's not even a thing of, like, someone going over the intercom and being like, attention, shoppers, two weirdos are fist fighting a horse in aisle seven, so, you know, stay out of aisle seven. Uh, it must be like, like, this this world operates on the rules of the purge, but only for horse crimes. <laughs> horses are allowed to do anything in this world. Yeah. Right? Laws don't apply to horses. <laughs> like, in the Constitution, the Founding Fathers were just like, Alright, so, Amendment 3. Do not tell horses what to do. Don't ever tell horses what to do. Horses are majestic creatures, and that also goes for mules which Dan forgot are different animals. Do not tell them what to do. I was wondering. Yeah. I keep, I'm going to keep calling it a horse. Um, but eventually, also the entire time he's uh, home aloneing them, uh, Gus mocks them by doing facial expressions, um, which for a mule, all facial expressions are horrifying. Uh, yeah. looks like looks like his face is opening up like the fucking xenomorph. It's terrible. But yeah, and then he lets Andy uh, take over so that he can win the game and be the big hero and earn his father's respect. I'm assuming every single member of the Adams goes home to the most hollow Super Bowl ring they can ever have because they basically just were there when a horse won the Super Bowl. They participated, technically, in a horse victory uh, and also an untrained Yugoslavian child. Uh, question, question. Is it more humiliating to be 
on the team that like just wins because you're standing next to a horse, or the team that gets no. beaten by the horse team in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I think probably. I guess, I guess it's got to be the former, right? Because like at that point, everybody's lost to the to the horse team. Oh uh, yeah, it's got to be more humiliating to be the horse's teammate. Like, oh, I'm trying to get traded to San Diego. All right, so while we're negotiating your salary, you on the team that lost to that horse? Okay. Okay, look, a lot of teams lost to the horse, all right? <laughs> yeah, the, the horse almost had an undefeated season. Everybody lost to the fucking horse. That horse is actually Justin Tucker and Adam Vinatieri in a horse suit. <laughs> and they trade off who gets to be the front and who gets to be the back. <laughs> Oh, God, for our listeners that don't like football, they're so screwed this episode, or this half of the episode. Those are two good football kickers. I Context, I guess. Uh, they gotta be, there has to be, like, a thing where one of the players is at a bar, like, hey, um, don't know if you like my jewelry, this is a, a Super Bowl ring, and she'd be like, oh, cool, that isn't the year that the horse won, is it? And he'd be like, never mind, never mind, let's Shut talk up. about- Shut fine, whatever. Let's talk, let's, I'm gonna try to date you on my merits now. No more Super Bowl ring. Yeah, that's Gus, an insane film that Don Knotts, again, is not really in. I did a bad job picking my one of these. So that's Gus, everyone. So I mentioned before that uh, Don Knotts was, like, mostly in, like, Disney-fied- family comedies there's no like raunch to him there is nothing because he's don fucking not right you can't you can't make barney fife dirty yeah or can you oh because we're traveling back to 1969 motherfuckers <laughs> warner brothers nice. film another brother's film entitled the love god with a question mark stylized with a question mark the love god mm-hmm. similar to a talking cat <laughs> in terrapang <laughs> And and I have to I have to tell you my favorite part of this entire movie is like the opening credits are rolling and there's like a scene happening behind the opening credits but it pauses it's just like Don Knotts and Francis and Edmund O'Brien in and then the title shows up the love god and then out of nowhere Don Knotts is not on the screen but you hear a recording of Don Knotts's voice screaming basically like in exasperation and confusion the love god <laughs> that's how the movie opens up the movie is just as confused that you're watching it as i am imagine seeing the title the love god but not seeing don Knotts' face and having that context so you're just like walking up to the marquee and you're just like the love god yeah sure i get you're the love god what's the question here why are you confused i'm not you're a god of love what oh and then you see the post and you're like oh Don Knotts. Right. That makes no sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm even more confused now. The Love God? I'm going to give you, like, a basic plot of The Love God. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Love God, Don Knotts plays a nerdy, simpish dork named Abner Audubon Peacock. His name is Audubon Peacock because he's a bird watcher. He's a bird lover. So there, it's, it's back in, like, old-timey rules where if you were the blacksmith, your name was Smith. If you're the bird watcher, your name is Peacock. So on and exactly, so forth. Exactly, yeah. 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 To be clear, he's got a whole, like, town named after him. He lives in the town of Peacock. Apparently, his whole, like, family has been in the Peacocking gener- you know, family for generations or whatever. So but, he has a fiefdom? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. 
Oh, damn it. I forgot. Okay, I forgot to do my pun. Well, I'll get to it later. Abner Audubon Peacock, he publishes a bird-watching magazine. It's called Peacock Magazine. But we don't meet him when the film opens. The film opens with a guy named Osborne Tremaine, who is a smut puddler. Uh, smut peddler. He is being uh, taken to court uh, on obscenity charges, and the judge... There's a pretty good scene where at the beginning where the judge is just like, Come on, look at this indecent filth you're peddling. And Osborne's like, that's my wife. The judge puts on his glasses and goes, oh, yeah, it is. Hello, Francis. I didn't recognize you. Or Evelyn. Uh, So this guy, Osborne Tremaine, is... The actor's name is Edmund O'Brien. He was he was also in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He's like a renowned character actor who's good for playing, like, blowhardy sleazeballs. He's in this movie, and he's supposedly a main character, but then he just kind of fucking drops off the face of the planet for, like, the latter half of it. So his whole shtick is he has been run out of the publishing business. He's lost his right to ship. You have to have a special license, I guess a class four license with the U S mail in order to ship magazines and do like large scale shipping or something. I have no idea if this is actually true, but this is what it was. And because of his like six or seventh obscenity charge, they will no longer send his stuff through the U S mail. So he's basically lost his right to use the post office. <laughs> that doesn't seem like a thing. Can I? Can it I, does not seem like a thing. Yeah. Can I ask a quick interlude? Is this an R-rated movie? Like, are there seventies oh, kids in this movie? That's a good question, Dan. One of the things that caught my eye about this is that the movie's rated PG thirteen, but the thing is, the PG thirteen rating didn't exist in nineteen sixty nine. That didn't exist until the eighties. So that tells me that at some point in time, the MPAA went back and re-rated this movie. Right. And shows to give it a PG thirteen there there are no there are no tits in this movie. There are no seventies tits. Um just imagining like Don Knotts looking at tits and being like, Oh boy Nipples. Ah. I mean, that's what you'd think most of this movie is, but that's only like a small chunk of this film, actually. So basically what happens is Osborne Tremaine has lost his his license to mail stuff his class four u.s postal service license he finds this guy abner audubon peacock who runs a bird watching magazine and the bird watching magazine is going under uh he's about to lose his building he's about to lose everything because it's a fucking bird watching magazine tremaine tricks peacock into making him a partner and kind of signing away the rights to the peacock magazine and then he sends Don Knotts off on like a, a basically a snipe hunt. He's like, oh, I bet you can go and photograph the rarest bird in South America, right? Yes, let me send you to Brazil to go photograph this bird. Goodbye. Don't worry about anything. There's a pretty funny sequence where Don Knotts gets sent to South America and he has to, he like flies in the cargo hold of a of a shipping plane, uh, and then his tour guide is like then we meet him because he's being thrown out of a bar and then he gets abandoned in the Brazilian jungle. Uh, and there's like a very long sequence where he hears this bird. He's making a bird call and then he hears the bird and he's making the, this bird call and he hears the other bird and he's doing this for a long time. And we cut away and then we come back to him and he's just like looking bedraggled and his clothes are all shredded. And it looks like he has, he's been out in the jungle for two weeks. And then finally he finds another bird watcher making the other end of the call. That's pretty good. What I need to be clear about here, Dan, is 
the first half of this movie fucking rules. It does? Yes, this movie is good for a good chunk of it. I was about to text you, I'm like, yo, this is Don Knotts' face in the crowd. Like, I was loving this movie for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. Because what happens then is Don Knotts returns, but by the time he returns, Tremaine has already turned the peacock into a smut mag. It's a a nudie mag. Right. right? And they get busted for obscenity again, uh, and now... Don Knotts, Abner Peacock, is dragged into this giant case, and everyone's like, and like, there's a big headline, Abner Peacock is a smut puddler and pervert. So everyone kind of abandons him, uh, except for his girlfriend, who is the preacher's daughter. We'll get to her in a second. Okay. Like, there's a scene where Don Knotts is about to hang himself. Oh, shit! His, his head... His head is in a fucking noose, and then he gets a knock at the door, and it's the ACLU. It's two people that work for the ACLU, and they're like, we want to take your case on. Your case is important for civil liberties. Is this a fucking... (laughs) Is this the people versus... It's the people versus Larry Flint. It's just the people versus Larry Flint. It starts off as as that. Yes. Yes. There's a big thing, and it's, it's very funny because Don Knotts' whole thing is just like, I'm not a pornographer. I don't want to do any of this. I'm, I'm going to go on the record and everyone's going to tell I'm going to tell everyone that I'm a nice boy. And then his defender is like his defending attorney is just like, okay, so you've called my client a sex obsessed little pornographer. You've called him a dirty pervert. You've called him a sicko. And that's all true. <laughs> <laughs> this actually sounds fucking great. Yeah. But it, the Constitution defends his right to publish being a pervert and a sicko. And the whole time, by the way, the whole time, th- this courtroom seems very funny. He's talking about both the DA and the defense attorney are talking about how Don Knotts is a sex-obsessed pervert. Look into his eyes. You can see how twisted he is. And all of the older women in the movie. It's just, it's just a recurring theme in this movie that women over the age of 50... Uh, 60, 70 are all super turned on by him. <laughs> all of the older ladies are just like, ooh, I'm into this. Yeah, yeah. So this movie starts off very clearly saying we have something to say about something. Yeah. Uh, Osborne Tremaine is libertarian as all fuck. He literally looks at the camera in the first 10 minutes of the movie and says, when will the government stop interfering in private business? That's a line that he actually has. This movie's like, we're going to make points about uh, counterculture, because all these hippies are on Don Knotts' side, right? We're going to make points about the counterculture. We're going to talk about the First Amendment. We're going to talk about government interference. Uh, we're going to talk about the sexual revolution of the 60s, because it is the 60s, remember. We're going to talk about women's lib, and we're going to talk about feminism. And then it just forgets to talk about any of that. What is it about for the remainder of the movie? I'm glad you fucking asked. So then we introduce two more characters. We introduce another character. This woman is like a reporter, like a Vanity Fair. Her name is Lisa LaMonica. And this woman, Anne Francis, who was in Forbidden Planet, is performing like like a 1940s girl reporter movie. Real Catherine Hepburn shit. Shtick. She's coming out of like a movie that should be like 20 years before. She's in charge of stringing Don Knotts along. Because she realizes that they need to make it look like Don Knotts is basically Hugh Hefner. He has to be the face of their magazine. Their magazine suddenly blows up because of all the free press coverage. 
Don Knotts is, he's off the hook. They find him not guilty. So the whole thing is not about the court case. The court case is the very beginning of the movie. After the court case, the whole thing is about pretending that Don Knotts is still a sex symbol. Pretending that Audubon, Abner Audubon Peacock is still getting laid all over town and being Hugh Hefner uh, so that they can sell magazines. So It's like her... Weekend at Bernie's, but they're making Don Knotts Hugh Hefner. Yeah, yeah. So so her job is basically to keep promoting and keep convincing people that Don Knotts is sexy, essentially. Osborne Tremaine pretty much drops out of the movie for a lot of it, and this is taken over by a character, Jay Fenton Twilight, who is a mob boss. A mobster gets involved. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah this movie goes some weird places. A mob boss gets involved because Tremaine goes to him to get the capital to publish the magazine. They make a bunch of money. So now this mob boss, the mob boss is a great character, by the way. He's like this, this big, like honking, like, I'm a Brooklyn. I ain't never been out of Brooklyn before guy who's trying to like have an air of classic classiness. He's basically trying to be like, I'm going to make a respectable business. So he's like, yeah, I'm all for getting into publishing. I want to be a publisher. I'm like string a bell. Yeah, yeah. He's got a recurring gag where he's hired a tutor. There's this old lady who comes in to help him write his memoirs and teach him to speak proper English, essentially. So that guy gets involved. So the rest of this fucking movie is about a love triangle, really a love, like, quadrangle between Don Knotts, this mob boss guy, and this, like, lady editor who is, I'll be honest, I've seen this movie, like, twice now i'm not sure if by the end of the movie she likes him or not and also where's don Knotts' girlfriend again i'm glad you asked dan you're always there right when i want to make a segue so don Knotts has a girlfriend she is the most stepford woman i have ever seen and her name is rose ellen wilkerson and so she he has this girlfriend literally waiting for him at home who is the preacher's daughter. And it's a recurring gag throughout the whole thing that, like, Don Knotts keeps saying, hey, Roselyn, once this is all over, I want you to be waiting out on your front porch because I got something real important I want to ask you. It's a recurring thing, like, that just cuts to her out on the front porch and she's waiting and then she'll get a phone call and he's like, yeah, I got to stay in New York, I guess. I got to pretend to do this. This is the only right thing. But wait for me and I'll be back. And it just keeps cutting back and forth to her. And the seasons just keep changing while she keeps waiting on the front porch. Again, very funny bit. But then all of a sudden the movie decides, no, it's actually very important that these two end up together. It's very important that uh, Don Knotts get with this this vacant mannequin of a woman. And also it's very, very important that we actually reveal that Don Knotts is a virgin. There's Hang on. so much shit going on. This there's is a fucking so many, tilt-a-whirl of a movie. There's so many elements to this. This is the most befuddled, batshit script I've seen in a long time. Was this the writer's room of this movie just Jason Statham and Crank? Like, if we if I stop doing plot lines, I'll die. We need we need more contrivances. More contrivances! Layers! It's layers! Otherwise, my heart will stop. Oh, more, I more, haven't. More. So here's where the climax of this movie fucking goes, right? Abner finds out about everything. He finds out that they've been playing him along and he goes back to his town and he's like, I'm going to go. I I was wrong. I'm going to go back to, to home and I'm going to 
Mary, uh, Mary, Mary Ellen, or whatever the hell her name is. I don't know. Mary, this boring woman, Rose Ellen. Uh, and her, her father, the preacher is like, hang on a second. Look, I know nothing happened with those women. You know, nothing happened with those women, but the rest of the country thinks that you have been getting, laying the fucking pipe all over New York city. I'm not going to let you marry my daughter and like have the rest of the world think that my daughter married a whore. And my daughter is riddled with STDs now. And so Don Knotts is like, well, you, you know, I'm actually a virgin. And they're like, okay, well, guess what? You're going to have a press conference. If you want to marry my daughter, you're going to have a press conference and you're going to tell the whole world that you're a virgin. Jesus and Christ. Wait for it. And so the editors of the magazine, the mob boss and the editor lady, Lisa LaMonica, they hatch a scheme. They're like, okay, well, we, we're going to lose everything if he comes out and says he's a virgin tomorrow. And they're like, well, what if he wasn't? And I go, what? No, 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 no. So Lisa LaMonica goes up to Don Knotts' penthouse. Gives him a drink that is drugged. And he falls flat. And while he is drugged, she does nothing. She does nothing. She waits until he is ready to wake up in the morning. Then she undresses and lays down next to him. So that he thinks they had sex. Okay. Which is better, but not so much. Yeah, still <laughs> I mean, pretty it's, bad. It's significantly better, but also really fucking bad. Um, it's, it's less therapy, but still a lot of therapy. So, yeah, so sh that's her plan. Her plan is to convince him that they had wait, sex. Wait, so sorry, he does he ever find out that he wasn't raped? No! Okay, so yeah, it, to him, he was right. Okay. He he breaks up with Rosellen. He's like, I'm sorry, go home. This has apparently changed me forever. So they break up, and then the next day, uh, he walks into the room with Lisa LaMonica, the editor lady, and is like, well, guess what? You and I are going to have to get hitched now. I made an honest woman out of you, so let's go get married or whatever. This is the fucking climax of the movie. This is the climax of the movie. So then he goes and tells the mob boss dude, who, by the way, has smacked Lisa LaMonica around earlier in this movie. Has smacked her. He, he smacked her around saying, you're going to be with this shrimp instead of being with me. Oh, you're my girl. You know? I forgot he was in love with this woman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I cannot picture the mob boss as Tom Hardy. He just keeps, like, I keep trying to picture him as not Tom Hardy, and he just keeps slowly morphing back. And so, and fucking so, Dan. Yeah. Now she's in a spot, she's like, oh, I don't love either of these dudes, or maybe I like Don Knotts, I don't really know, it's kind of unclear. I can't marry these people at all. Also, the, like, pornographer and his wife are just like, hello, we're also here! We've also <laughs> been in just, this movie. They, wait, they just walk briskly through the movie, like we've been here the entire time. <laughs> yeah, literally. Like, like at one point in time, they kind of like help Don Knotts escape from the office because the mob boss is going to kill him, and then disappear from the movie again until the wedding scene. So they just swoop in like fucking Han Solo, just like redemption arc. Woo, and we're off. 
<laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. And like, and, like, the whole movie should have been about them. The whole movie should have been about uh, this guy, Osborne Tremaine, like, dirtying up this dude, uh, Audubon Peacock. And, like, the whole yeah. movie should have been, like, a buddy thing between them. Uh, and, kind of, and like, con- him convincing Audubon that it's important that they publish this smut for the rights of the Constitution. For America! Or whatever. That's the fucking movie right there! You know? Yeah. But instead, it becomes this convoluted, dipshit, 60s-ass mess. So let me tell you about the fucking final wedding scene, right? Peacock is in a weird position because he thinks, I have to marry this this woman, but if I do marry this woman, the mob boss is going to shoot me. He, like, he whispers to the preacher, he's like, listen, when you do the, like, do you take the bride thing, you got to hit the deck. Just don't let, don't, don't fucking, don't question me. You got to hit the ground. Okay, then Lisa walks down the aisle and she's all in white and Don Knotts is sitting there like, what? Uh, Okay, and then she says, don't worry, I'm just the maid of honor. And then his girlfriend, Mary Ellen, his longstanding Thelma Lou ass girlfriend, walks down. This poor woman. There's no reason for this woman to marry this man. Why do they keep putting Don Knotts with women who have no reason to be with him. Yeah. And, you're, and we're like, okay, it's all safe now. Uh, and okay, I, I guess you're, I guess Don Knotts does learn that he wasn't raped in this scene. Like at the very okay, end, cool. right before, right before the credits roll. And then, do you, hey Dan, do you remember when I told you earlier that the mob boss had hired an old lady tutor to come in? She worked for the FBI! Hey! Boom, you're under arrest! Happy ending to something, I guess. This movie forgets to be anything. This movie starts off. There's, there is, by the way, a, a like four minute, like dance montage of a song, like a song called Hey Mr. Peacock that has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And the lyrics aren't just like about a, a sexy guy. It's just like they were, the songwriters were just given the prompt. Write a song about a guy named Mr. Peacock, and he's cool. And the lyrics are all just like, Hey, Mr. Peacock, who could ever be so groovy? We're a band that looks like the monkeys, and we've got two drummers for some reason. This band has two drummers for some reason? Yeah. A lot of stuff happens during this montage. In this montage, apparently they open up like five peacock clubs around the country. I have no idea what the time frame is in this fucking movie. I have no idea how long. This entire thing could happen in the span of a week. This entire thing could happen over the span of six months. I guess guess at least a year passes because she is like waiting out on the front porch for Christmas at one point. Okay, okay. So wait, how do they convince America that Don Knotts is fucking all over town? Like, do they have just, are they just paying women to be like, Mr. Peacock, deep me last night yes put it on page 10 yeah no they 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 hire women to go and be his his playboy bunnies essentially his peacock playmates and he's like is he like i guess sure or is he like no i didn't do it In, in true barney fife fashion he starts off like oh no i can't do this and then he sees the girls and he's like well i guess for america like yeah and so, and so he's, he allows himself to be photographed in like the dumbest, pimpest outfits 
in the world with like four or five women all around him and these women live in the penthouse with him like it's it's revealed by a guy like there's a fourth dude here who is i don't know like an agent or something he's nothing i forgot about him until just now how many elements are there in this fucking movie (laughs) there's so many elements in this movie there's so many plates spinning in this film he tells us that he's just teaching them bird calls Whatever, I don't care. Yeah. By the uh, way, Dan, by the way, Dan, yeah. I guess you could say that in this movie, nobody actually gets really naughty. Not. That was, it's pretty good. I've been sitting That's... on it for a while. I, I keep forgetting to do it. And then, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm kind of coming at this film with the perspective of, like, I am looking at the poster. And I am envisioning that basically a huge portion of the audience for this film is teenage boys that thought they were going to see tits. Please read the tagline of that poster, if you would. So many women, not enough man. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. It's, I'm just imagining, like, all right, I'm 13 years old. I'm rolling the dice on a movie. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to see some stuff that I can go home and jerk off to the memory of later. Let's do this. And then just sitting down for this increasingly convoluted like rat's nest of a story just being like there's the fbi i just wanted to see areolas just come on there's a mob boss now like why are you doing this to me it it very much feels like the predecessor of those kind of like uh national lampoon movies would or, or or like an american pie thing where it's like yeah you're gonna get like one nude scene but it's also gonna be compounded by a shitload of stories about like a boy and his dad and family values and stuff like that except yeah. those movies again are about things and this is yeah madness I... so yeah man i don't i don't actually have that much to say about the love god except to describe to you what the fuck happens in the love god it's madness and i cannot again i cannot tell you how good and how funny the first like 40 50 minutes of this movie are like i was like i'm in i i'm i've made a good decision i'm gonna roll with this and then it just decides we need a whole bunch of other stuff and we can't keep track of any of it and we're not about anything and nothing matters. It's 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 a very weird like there's a very weird like uh virgin whore dichotomy thing going on with this movie and it is kind of interesting to see that turned around onto a man. I will say that that's yeah. a little interesting. But it's it's this weird thing with movies at the time, especially major motion pictures where they wanted to be like we're naughty, we're gonna keep yeah. be freaky, but also we're but also chastity and morality will end up will went out in the end gotta make sure that we can do that so it's like it's like it's such a hollow thing about getting the squarest dude in the world don knots to be like your like like i'm sorry the the whole premise is like we've got the squarest dude in the world literally barney fife we're gonna try to turn barney fife into hugh hefner and that's a very funny premise but the fact that like he has to still be Barney Fife at the end, it ruins it. Like, the fact that we yeah. have to jump through hoops to make sure that he's still fucking Mayberry by the end is... Yeah. I I would like to see a Love God remake. I would like to see, like, uh, I don't know, what's his name? Jay Baruchel in, in like, oh, this kind God. of role. Well, I would like to yeah, see I, Jay Baruchel in anything. I, I like him. to... 
Yeah, yeah. I like to see. I, I thought it was kind of funny in This Is the End where they kind of make a reference that like all of his friends are way more famous than he is. Um, I I would like to see like them kind of step back and try this again because I feel like there's something worth talking about here. And if you weren't like bound by like weird 1960s censor restrictions, you could probably make a great movie out of this premise. I don't know how you would update it, but uh, or just make it a period piece. Just set it in the fucking 60s. It's it's idealized for that. It sounds it it sounds like being like like watching a street performer juggle bowling pins and you're like, I'm having a good time. And then someone's like, and now we throw in chainsaws and you're like, Jesus, I I'm so stressed out now. I liked the bowling pins. It's fine. It was fine. Oh God! Stop putting chainsaws in. Yeah, uh, I. This yeah. movie is a mess, dude. It's a clusterfuck. But I will say this: no one fights a donkey. No one fights a donkey. I think. <laughs> I think We've talked about th- three movies, and in two of them, Tim Conway, Conway fought a donkey. Fought a donkey. Tim Conway, donkey fighter. <laughs> I want a spin-off series where, like, like donkeys cause trouble, and when donkeys cause trouble, you call Tim Conway. Like, he's like Batman, but specifically more like Voltron, where like. Uh, a donkey will just start rampaging downtown, and like Tim Conway will be at his like tasteful uh, one-story home in L.A., just swirling a glass of whiskey, and like the the red light on the phone will stop going off, and he'll just be like, "What's that? A donkey's misbehaving. I'll be right there." And then like some armor comes on, and he flies off to wrestle a donkey. So yeah, man. I mean, I. I thought that I'd have a lot more shit to say about the love god, but nothing. There's nothing really that I can comment on other than just tell you, this is what happens in this movie. This is what happened in the love god. It was insane. Uh, so I guess I guess my my closing thoughts are: do not watch the love god, or watch a little bit of the love god. I have to say there is one. Oh, there are a couple of Andy Griffith references in this movie that I want to point out. Um, number one, at the very beginning of the movie, Don Knotts is in a choir and we fade up on this choir and they are singing Juanita, Juanita. They're are you singing the, right I'm, not, I'm not fucking with you. This fucking happens. Are you sure you're not fucking with me right now? <laughs> Dan, I, I'm telling you, I made up none of this. Events like these and the fact of how often weird Andy Griffith coincidences come up in both of our lives really has me convinced that you and me are in some sort of Matrix-esque sim- like simulation that is just, like, glitching slowly. Uh, and somehow we've, we've found the way out, and it's Andy Griffith. I rewound this scene, like, three times to make sure. Yeah, no. There is a very funny bit where uh, the choir sings a song and the song is about birds they're like oh this is a song about birds and they make don knots do bird calls for every single bird that they name and keeps getting faster and faster and faster um until it ends with like the american eagle and it's just don knots screaming and screeching and pretending to be a bird yeah very very funny bit um (laughs) outrageously funny can i tell you a quick aside that uh i've been meaning to tell you about um 
Brianna told her mom a bunch of stuff about me, but only two things have stuck with her. One is that I have a podcast, and the other is that I'm really into bird watching. Uh, which I have explained. Only one of those things is true. Yeah, I have explained multiple times. I am not into bird watching. I have friends that are into bird watching, and she every time understands it. But then the next time she's like, "Hey, do you check out that bird? <laughs> do you want like like kind of making fun of me? <laughs> like I think she's fucking with me, but I'm I'm first and foremost." Her, Brianna's bird-watching boyfriend. And I'm not even, I don't even bird-watch. I'm just in a Facebook group with people that do. You are big bird-watching owned by proxy. I mean, you might as well just take up bird-watching at this I point, I might dude. as well. I'm already the guy. I'm already her weird bo- boyfriend that has a podcast and is super into bird-watching. Yeah, man. What kind of fucking loser would have an Andy Griffith podcast and also be super into bird-watching? Yeah, what, what kind of freak fucking- would that be? Yeah, what kind of fucking door? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be like thought of in that sort of way. That's like a worst case scenario for me. So that's been our re- our trip report on uh, the films of Don Knotts. Next week we'll be back uh, to talk about some Andy Griffith episodes again. But we had to take a break. Yeah, thank you for following us down this weird rabbit hole for a hot minute. As always, uh, you can get at us on the internet. We are on twitter.com slash breakmayberry, uh, facebook.com slash breakingmayberry, uh, Instagram, we are breakingmayberry. The music you heard before was written by, well, not written, the music you just heard was made by Max Ludwig, who is on Twitch as Sleep Talkie. Uh, on Twitter, I am Schneid Remarks. It's S C H N E I D Remarks. I'm at the Luds, two Ds. Uh, this has been a, a thing, folks. I'm glad that we did this. Uh, yeah. we'll s- I'm done with this. We'll see you all down oh. at the Thank you.